Hi, this is That Stack of Books, and I'm Nancy Pearl. I'm Steve Scher, room full of folks at the Brian Corner Cafe. We sound very large today. We sound very big. Well, that's good. Big, big issues before us. Absolutely. We're going to talk about political books, past and future, um, fiction and nonfiction. And, uh, I, you know, when I'm asked about political books, I... Uh, the two the two novels that I always uh, my go-to books when people are interested in in especially American politics well four books that about American wait politics. six wait six right oh wait twelve um, <laughs> but in in terms of fiction uh, Robert Penn Warren's all the all the King's Men uh, just an amazing book that still has resonance. I mean, it resonates in this election even more than ever. Right. Um, you know, about a demagogue who about, knows how to touch the populace right. and get himself elected. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, just an amazing book. Uh, and, and nobody should go through their life not having read all, all, the, all the King's Men. Um, but the other, one, the other one that I always sort of Re, that I reread, you know, every five years or so, is um, is Advise and Consent by Alan Drury. I think that what I appreciate about it more and more is the picture it gives of a government that works. People who um, who disagree mightily about many things, Republicans and Democrats, but but work together on the Senate floor primarily the Senate floor, to, um, to, to make things happen. Who were they advising and consenting about? An appointment. Well, yes, um, a cabinet appointment. A cabinet case, appointment, right. right. And uh, Alan Drury became, I would say, a whack job later on in his books. But this book, which was, I believe, his first novel, I, I think shows us, shows us a, a picture of Washington that we're probably not going to see again in in our lifetimes and some of us at the table are young so <laughs> no we will never see that right we'll never see, that's just not the way america's operating anymore right we're more like the uk now we will our political parties will fight and it'll have to be majorities that will get squeak things through um, the two gorvey doll books which again i feel everybody should everybody should experience gorvey doll's burr his historical biography, his 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 fictional biography of Aaron Burr, and um, and Lincoln, you know. Sometimes I feel there are so many books out about um, Abraham Lincoln and good books that are out about Abraham Lincoln uh, that examine everything uh, in his life from childhood through his death. But I think that Gore Vidal, you know, in this form of a historical novel, he just he just manages. He, he really brings those two men alive for the reader. And they're part of a longer, I think, a four-book set, what he calls his Washington, six-book set. Se oh, sorry, I can't even count. His but they weren't all about individuals, right? Some of them were about the city itself, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Washington, D.C. was one of them. But, but, but Burr especially, I remember when I read Burr for the first time, and I, I just thought... You know, we we don't take Gorby Dahl seriously enough uh, as as a writer or as a thinker. 
His publisher put out a book of his essays and writings towards the end of his life that was probably twice as thick as this Wolf Hall book that you brought. And it was astounding to read his, his political musings from the 50s all the way through right. the... Yeah. And, and if there was anyone who we could say Dean was in many ways a Washington insider, it was Gore Vidal, both by birth and by the kind of life that he, that he lived. You know, you could say that Gore Vidal also kind of ushered in this, the type of language that is, the type of political discussion that has become prevalent in America today, because I was teaching my interviewing class and I used the Gore Vidal, William F. Buckley, 1968, uh, I think it was ABC commentaries from the conventions. And they were terrible to each other. And they called each other names. And, uh, and uh, was good TV that made them both very well known and probably got high ratings. Yeah. You can imagine the many letters that ABC got in response to those um, their discussions and we don't we don't even get that so much these days that kind of two very smart people coming looking at the world I mean who are talking I mean trying to understand what's happening yeah or in that case calling each other yeah crypto fascists right. and <laughs> you gay something or other I can't remember what he called them no, queer yeah I believe right. I think it was even worse than that I think it was fake. yeah it was it was right. it was ugly Yes. Just a precursor to what we have now, uh, which I think is an excellent segue to America by John Stewart. America, a citizen's guide to democracy in action. I read, I've been reading it again, and there are some great parts, and I'll just mention one. It's uh, the journey of the game of the pres presidency, where one probably rolls the dice. But honestly, in today's environment, it seems almost lame. Uh, it seemed tame? Are you saying it seems tame by comparison? Yes. It didn't hit me as funny. Maybe just because I think what's going on is so serious. So the book I was thinking about was All the Truth is Out by Matt Bai. And, and his, his argument that in 1987, when Gary Hart was running for president, he, he, and when he was uh, accused of perhaps, or, or people were saying, are you having an affair? And he said, you know, prove it, journalists, prove it. Follow me. Follow me. And that became this, um, mm -hmm. that was the, the time when it changed, that personal yeah. became yes. political right. and everything was okay territory. And I think you could trace a line from that along with Huey Long or, or, or uh, you know, all, all the King's men to the kind of the way we speak about politics today, which is I can say anything and I can try anything and if it works, it's good and if it doesn't, nobody remembers. This is Christopher. There's a series on CNN, as much as I hate to reference them right now, about the history of political campaigns in America and we always think that this is as bad as it's ever been. And it turns out that it's always been this awful, dating back to the founding of the Republic. Uh, people have said horrible, unsupportable, gutter snipe lies about each other since the beginning of time. So if there's a way to take a note of hope in the midst of this nasty election season, maybe that's it, because it's just the way we are. 
I, I was going to say that the election of 1800 mm -hmm. that, that, that saw uh, Jefferson um, get into office, who, who was viciously attacked by the Washingtonians and, and those followers of John Adams, uh, people didn't think that the election, people questioned whether the country could stay together during that election. I mean, it was really known as the revolution of 1800. Don't you think it was because the difference is that today the information is disseminated quickly to all of us? And I guess that uh, that goes to the article you were reading in The New Yorker, right? Right. So this is Judy and Jill Lepore, um, who is a New Yorker writer and also a historian at Harvard. Harvard. Um, wrote a fascinating article this week about how whenever the communication medium changes radically, then the way in which party politics are organized and happen in order to elect a president, that changes, those things change as well, and that our latest sort of communication revolution, and therefore she says once again a new evolution in party politics is social media. And so once more we're seeing a, a, a change in, in how that happens. And I think Barack Obama's use of, so, very adroit use of social media um, and uh, compared to um, Hillary Clinton's at that time when, he, when they were first running, I mean I think there's a lot of data that shows that Hillary Clinton just didn't have a mastery of that, whereas Barack Obama's team did, um, went very far in her losing the primary to the, 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 losing the um, nomination to him. But now I think that, um, I mean, you know, there's something pretty, pretty amazingly depressing about the fact that you, that you can tweet anything, and it and and it can go viral. Judy, again, I just want to add one more thing. So the book I brought in today, and I'm not going to go into detail about why till maybe later, but is Wolf Hall, but which I think probably most people know is um, about Cromwell and Henry VIII and so on. But one of the interesting quotes I came across today when I was skimming it to find things for our discussion was the following. When the last Treason Act was made, no one could circulate their words in a printed book or a bill because printed books were not thought of. He, Cromwell, feels a moment of jealousy toward the dead, to those who serve kings in slower times than these. Nowadays, the products of some bought or poisoned brain can be disseminated through <laughs> Europe in a month. And I just thought, I didn't know we were going to have this discussion about the communications, but oh my gosh, is that not relevant or what? Yeah, it used to be that you didn't know the results of um, a war, say, until the losers started straggling home um, months and months later, making their way back from you know, the crusaders coming home. And now, instantaneous. Nancy, this is Christopher again. Uh, wondering where two of my favorite books about American politics would wind up on your list. Um, the Making of a President in 1960, and All the President's Men. Yeah, um, I was gonna, t I was gonna uh, talk about um, uh, the, uh, the Making of the President series. I mean, the 1960s, the 1960s 
the first, which was the first one, I think is just absolutely can't be beat. I mean, yeah, uh, Theodore White. And again, I think that anyone interested in contemporary politics needs to be grounded in, in the past, needs to know the past. And, and Theodore White's book is one of, I think, one of the best. Mm -hmm. And um, All the President's Men, I, I think that's one of the classics of modern political thought. Why, th why thought? I well, know it was know. for journalism, it yeah. was like that seminal thing. So this is Tom, when, you know, when uh, Cleveland ran for president, there was a poem that went viral. Ma, ma, where's my pa gone to the White House, ha, ha, ha. Everybody in the country knew that. It was viral. <laughs> I don't know how long it took, but everyone knew it. And it didn't keep him out of the White House, right? Oh, that no. that that uh, rumor that he had fathered an Ill illegitimate child. How was Wilson's uh, campaigning in the, in his first and second terms? He kept us out of war. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the the Wilson book by A. Scott Berg, uh, I think that's relevant because you can ask the question: How does politics now compare with a hundred years ago? And this was exactly a hundred years ago. Uh, and in in in, in the the preamble to that was the was the election of 2000 well, of 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt was so angry at Taft who had been his best political buddy uh, he was so angry that he formed a third party uh, and that allowed Wilson to be elected with like 41 percent of the of the uh, vote uh, and then Wilson turns around in 1916 gets reelected and then you have a Democratic president fighting with a Republican Senate. How real does that seem? And they fought tooth and nail, and the Republican Senate refused to approve the uh, League of Nations. Uh, and uh, Wilson whistle-stopped the entire country trying to convince the country and build this, uh, this grassroots campaign to approve the League of Nations. And number one, it didn't work. The Republicans in the Senate won. And number two, he had a stroke from which he never recovered. And the executive branch was then run by his wife, his doctor, and the chief of staff of the White House for months. I really like that book. I thought A. Scott Berg did a great job of also conveying all of Wilson's warts. Because Wilson did run a racist campaign and a very uh, nativist campaign in some instances. And so it was interesting that he... He encompassed that guy, who we sort of think of as today as you know, this, this genteel president who, who wanted to make us make the world safe for, for democracy and freedom. Uh, but isn't it, is it Duke University that has the Woodrow Wilson School of no, International? Princeton. Princeton. Princeton, Princeton. Has the, so where he was president right. has the Woodrow Wilson yeah. School of International and Relations, and they're debating that hotly right now what to do with that name because he was so racist. Right. It hasn't gone away. Uh, this is Robin, and I was going to mention Richard Hofstetter's The Paranoid Style in American History, which has a lot of resonance now, and that was, a, it's actually a book about essays, but uh, Paranoid Style was the big essay that got a lot of attention about uh, how we've had this history of nativism and xenophobia from, from the time of the revolution, and he goes through... Uh, the Know Nothing Party that was, uh, and the anti-Catholic movement in the mid-1800s up to uh, the Red Scares of 1919 and the 1950s, and 
And uh, there's so much resonance now in how this, uh, this kind of thinking uh, about people who aren't like you or the enemy, and of course we see it in, in our politics now. And I had a couple of uh, quotes here. I hadn't heard about this, but of course we know that uh, candidate Trump has, uh, was questioning Obama's birth and uh, and a lot of people still, I think, believe that President Obama is a Muslim and there are these kind of, well, lots of obstructionism uh, with, uh, of Obama's policies by some people on the right. But I, I thought this said a lot about the paranoid style that the Texas State Republican Party in 2012, part of their platform was opposing critical thinking in state schools because they thought this would undermine students' fixed beliefs and their parental authority and the, the, the authority of parents. So that was interesting. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why are kids thinking like And then the, I found out a little bit more about Trump and some of the people who are, uh, he's getting a lot of support from white supremacists. And I thought, well, that's, that probably makes sense in view of what he says, but he's been endorsed by this neo-Nazi website, the Daily Stormer, and then there's this group called White Genocide Project that sent a petition to the White House and said that we support Donald Trump because he opposes white genocide. I mean, this is a, boy, I don't know, I hadn't thought as much about this as I probably should have, but to get that kind of support for somebody, I, I guess this is where we're getting into, uh, you know, some pretty scary territory, and and it, uh, so I just wanted to mention Hofstetter, and, and he won the Pulitzer Prize. I think he wrote Paranoid Style in '64, and he won the Pulitzer Prize for anti-intellectualism in American life in '63, and and he was uh, a well-known historian uh, that theme of anti-intellectualism ties in with the paranoid style, I, I think, too. Interesting that he would do that in 64 when both parties were guilty of fomenting paranoia. Just wanted to mention, we, we were talking, this is Bob Beekman, uh, a, a little bit ago we were talking about the uh, election in, uh, in 1916, but also you made reference to the election of 1912. There's a book by James Chase called 1912 Wilson, Roosevelt, Taft, and Debs, uh, the election that changed the country. So it was a very interesting election in that uh, uh, Roosevelt, who had been out of office for four years, got ticked off at his uh, the man he had picked to be the president at Taft, and uh, when, when he failed to gain the uh, Republican nomination in opposition to Taft, he formed his own party, the Bull Moose Party, a progressive party. And of course, Wilson was in there. And we also had one of the biggest socialist turnouts for Debs during that election. And it was partly because of that s split in the electorate that, that Wilson uh, uh, gained uh, the White House. So that, that for me, is a very interesting election, partly because of the insurgents, including the former crowned head who is deciding to be an insurgent against his, his own party. Is there a line from Debs to Bernie Sanders in, in American politics? I don't mean in their politics, but in the way, if Bernie Sanders was the candidate 
it would be socialist. You want this socialist, right? The language would be that. Is there a line from Debs to Sanders in, in the way Debs was treated, do you think? Do you know what uh, I would think that actually Sanders is doing better. Uh, Debs was definitely had a, a fairly decent turnout, as you said, 12 million votes, but, um, um, but he definitely was pigeonholed, so to speak. You know, so, uh, and the remarkable thing about Sanders as a socialist is that uh, he's at least running this presidential campaign within the Democratic Party. And for the most part, you know, if you ignore the label and just listen to him, he still seems, in a sense, mainstream. Susie, taking a political high ground, which we can use, um, team of rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. And then that backs me into Lincoln, which then reminds me of Lincoln at Cooper Union, which is a wonderful story of when he went in his suit he was so proud of but looked so bad and spoke in his Hoosier twang to the New Yorkers who didn't know who he was. Don't you think that, that President Obama read, read Team of Rivals? I think Yes, I think he did. I think he said he did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yet, he was not able to create that same, I mean, Lincoln was able to create that, and yet, in this day and age. He should have read Julius Caesar. <laughs> I was thinking a little bit about that line from Debs to uh, Bernie Sanders today, and I wondered about Henry Wallace and some of these other third party candidates we've had. And, I don't know a lot about Henry Wallace, but he was a progressive and ran in 1948, probably took some votes away from Truman at that time, and you remember Dewey came close to beating Truman. And then you have other third party candidates on the other side, like uh, George Wallace and uh, Ross Perot, who actually you know, got a few votes uh, during those elections. Uh, yeah, you could trace Ross Perot to Donald Trump in some ways, but who, who ran in 1980? Who was the... John Anderson. John Anderson. Oh, right. yeah. And John Anderson was a much more successful, I don't mean successful, much more reasonable sort of candidate than, than the usual third-party candidate. And a key, a key concept here, which I think is politically very important, so Wilson got 41.9% of the vote. He got 435 of the electoral votes. And so, it's, and so Berg actually talks about this being an overwhelming victory for Wilson, because if you look at the Electoral College, it was. But in terms of the popular vote, it was not. And, that, and the Electoral College really uh, um, uh, skews and distorts the American political process, which I think is a very important thing to think about. Timothy yeah. Egan, you asked Al Gore. Timothy Egan, I was talking to Timothy Egan today, he said that the 538 website uh, was looking at the Electoral College numbers, and if that Donald Trump got everything that Mitt Romney got in terms of states and was able to flip Wisconsin and Michigan, which is possible, he could win. Uh, in connection with the, this is Bob, mm -hmm. uh, in connection with the Electoral College, I uh, was looking at a, uh, a novel that is based on this strange role that the Electoral College has in our presidential elections. I, I don't remember the author's first name. His name is Greenfield and it's called The People's Choice. And his premise is that the president-elect dies between the election and the inauguration, or actually before the Electoral College meets and all the, the, uh, 
the strange constitutional issues that this this brings up. It's kind of a uh, it, it's not a great book from a literary point of view, but from a make you think point of view about our politics, it's pretty interesting. There's a, a science fiction um, story by someone whose name I can't remember, but the the plot of the story is that. Um, election polling has gotten so sophisticated that we are in the story there at the that point in in US history where to decide who's winning they pick someone at random and they ask them one question what do you think of the price of eggs and that person's answer to that question determines who the president will be and I don't know who wrote it. Do you, Bob? Uh, it might have been Isaac Asimov, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I do remember one, one of the cute things he does is that the administration is known not by who is elected as president as a result of this, but by the voter, that one individual voter who puts in that, right. That, right. that human factor that right. can then be, you know, yeah. go through the computer algorithm. Right, yeah. Yeah, my name is Rita. Um, well, being that I didn't grow up in this country, um, I didn't read too many political books uh, referring to the United States, but where I am from, we love to read books about the foreign policy of the United States, especially if they had to do something you know, with us. So I would mention three books that they were very, they, they have a very profound impact in me and many people from my generation. The first one is the famous Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano, of course, the book that was given to Obama by Hugo Chavez. Uh, then when I came to, we, we all of us, were, it was just like a Bible for us. I'm talking about 40 years ago. And then when I moved here, I discovered Noam Chomsky, and I was fascinated by his books for a long time. And then more recently, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I discovered this book. Uh, it was really important for me. Um, the book name is um, a Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Yes. Uh, yeah, John Perkins. So, well, if you're familiar with this, it's just a very, you know, open uh, your eyes. It's very interesting. John Perkins was a very paranoid guy. I, I met him and he was very paranoid. Maybe became, rightly he so. He became a witch. Yeah, he's doing medicine, uh, like uh, people in, in the forest and in the jungle. Yeah. He, had, he said he had people coming after him, so maybe that made sense. <laughs> Hi, I'm Leslie, and the, the book I pulled out of the bookcase sort of at the last minute was Philip Ross, The Plot Against America. And uh, this is one of those, uh, you know, what would have happened uh, if somebody else had won the election? And in this case, it's Charles Lindbergh, who was quite anti-Semitic, won the, won the uh, election instead of uh, Franklin Roosevelt. And he, uh, he felt Hitler was doing the right thing, and so they collaborated, and it turned out that uh, the Jews in America ha really had a very, very different kind of life than they had anticipated in this. It was, it's really a bone-chilling book. And another mm -hmm. one that's humorous that's sort of about the same time frame is 
um, the Yiddish Policeman's Union of Sitka, Alaska, which is one of my favorites of all time just because it's so funny uh, about the infighting amongst a, a very, very small group of people and how silly it gets. And uh, in that one, it was about you know, the fact that uh, when Hitler was really uh, going after the Jews in, in, um, in Europe and word was getting over here in certain communities that there were a lot of refugees that really needed to come to the United States, but there was no uh, desire at all in this country amongst the, amongst the cabinet and the, gov you know, and the people in, gov in government who would decide such things to bring them over. They had to figure out a place there where they maybe they could go to Sitka, Alaska, because there weren't a whole lot of people there. And, and so, it wasn't a state yet. And it wasn't a state. Yeah, exactly. So it was a perfect place, and you know, it was a place where people could actually grow food if they wanted to and raise animals. And and uh, so they managed to ship them up there. But it was very, very funny what happened when they got there. Shades of of the modern times with that love fest between Lindbergh and Hitler, right? The love yeah. the love fest between Putin and Trump. My name is Harold. Um, but I was thinking about the fact that uh, I, I'm Jewish, and uh, especially in the 20s and 30s, 40s, 50s, large numbers of Jews were communists or socialists. Uh, they, they felt isolated, and they initially thought that communism or socialism were, were great, were just great things and would, and would allow them to obtain some level of, uh, of equality. The other thing that I, that I heard was interesting, um, did Eldridge Cleaver get many votes in 1968? I don't know. I forgot that Eldridge ran, but that's right, he ran for president. I, mean, I, I was in Massachusetts at the time, and, and I was a young man, and everybody that I knew was talking about, oh, I'm not going to vote for, Hugh, for Humphrey or for Nixon, they're both the same. I'm either not going to vote or I'm going to vote for Cleaver. And I think that might have tipped the election, actually. A lot of, you think so? A lot of people didn't vote. A lot of people, Nixon, uh, hum, a lot of people saw Nixon and Humphreys being about the same. And Cleaver was this, uh, you know, young radical guy who uh, um, had a lot of appeal. What do you think? Were they the same, Nixon and Humphrey? Absolutely not. Because besides, you know, being from Massachusetts, we've hated Nixon for about 100 years. My name is Susan, and I brought a book that is not about politics, but it's about the concept that um, it's called The Role of Death in Life. And the man that wrote it, one of the three, but the main author was a guy that was at um, Town Hall about a month ago, Solomon. And the whole premise is that the, the fear of death does influence all decisions in, in life. So with that in mind, I looked at this one passage having a terrible trouble with this popularity of um, Trump. And this would explain it all by n noting that when things are really bad, like people think they are economically, um, you know, the environment, so many ways right now, having a charismatic individual perform a striking initiatory act like he did by announcing he'd be president, shines a magnifying light on him and makes him seem larger than life, enthralls followers who wish they had the courage to follow suit, teeming with admiration and sensing a way to feel significant again, 
people join the cause of the seemingly larger-than-life leader as a revitalized basis of self-worth and meaning in life. You can also go back, he talks about the feelings of Hitler and this, they were, and Germany was at such a low point in every way and he came and he, he talked like he was bigger than life. I have one other thing I'd like to say about Trump. When he says now he's going to change and start acting presidential, what the heck? Who are you? Now I'm not going to be this obnoxious, self-centered, I'm going to be presidential. Well, I have a little trouble with the truth. I'm not sure this discussion could have taken place in South Carolina. <laughs> this is Bob. I wanted to mention a, a writer who's been around, a political writer, who's been around for a long time and actually switched sides, Kevin Phillips, whose first book was The Emerging Republican Majority, which really laid out the whole southern strategy of the Republican Party. It was published in 1969 and uh, basically was the blueprint for what Nixon and uh, his uh, successive uh, uh, leaders of the Republican Party did with their southern strategy. And then during the 90s, Kevin Phillips decided he didn't like the results and he started writing books that almost sound like Bernie Sanders. He has a one in 2006, American Theocracy, The Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. So there's an interesting example of someone who looked at what he did early in his writing career and decided he didn't like it and uh, has been uh, really writing against it uh, in, in, since the 90s. Rita, I just uh, rem what you said about uh, the kind of a messianic movement and the attraction of charismatic leaders reminds me of that wonderful book. But I don't, I'm not sure if I know the title in English. <laughs> Eric Fromm, uh, Fear of Freedom. Who wrote it? Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm. The oh, Eric Fromm. Eric Fromm. Psychology. What's the name of the book? It was published here under the title Escape from Freedom. You are right. Yes, well, Escape from Freedom. Wonderful book. Yeah. yeah. This is Judy, and I really did want to go back to Wolf Hall for just a second. First of all, because it's one of the best books that I've ever read, I think. And secondly, because the main character, Cromwell, to me, is the essence of a political animal. And so, you know, there are many lenses through which you can view this book, but one of them certainly is politics. And also, when I reread the book, I discovered that it really is grappling with another hinge in terms of moving from, at least in Cromwell's mind, and I think historically, moving from um, a an idea of governance and politics that's purely focused on divine right of kings to suddenly this idea that maybe the people play a role, might play a role in politics, might play a role in governance. And, and so I think that's really a fascinating moment in, in political history and that um, Mantell does an amazing job of weaving that into everything else that's going on in the book. I just wanted to mention a couple of uh well, I, I love political satire, like Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels, but I wanted to mention a couple books that might be a little more fun to read, with the exception of John Stewart. I think we've been talking about some pretty uh, serious books, but I wanted to mention 
uh, an iconic book of the new journalism, which was Hunter S. Thompson's uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas about the 1972 campaign. campaign. Yeah, yeah. Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail. On the campaign trail, right, yeah. And also, Timothy Krauss wrote a book then uh, called Boys on the Bus about the reporters who were following the campaign, and I thought that was a great book, and I'm surprised it doesn't get more attention now. One hopeful thought in this week where we saw some social media memes about a little girl who was burst into tears when she was told by her mother that Obama wouldn't be president forever, and a 106-year-old woman who got to visit the president for the first time yesterday. Um, for those of us who think he's been a good president uh, and look with sadness on next January 20th, uh, consider with solace the notion that each day brings us one day closer to reading his autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you all. <laughs>